to Psalm 28. Psalm 28 will be the first reference that we'll be referring to. Preaching had better not be a boring ritual that we go through every Sunday morning as part of some dead religion. I hope that this morning you are ready to concentrate for a few minutes. Few is in the minds of the speaker. A few minutes to learn what has God said about prayer. Don't you want to learn that? Don't let our services become dead. I, I do my best to keep them from that. But right now, you ought to be opening your Bible, getting set, saying in your mind, all right, Lord, what are you going to teach me today about prayer so I can be a better prayer, so that I can be like Jacob, or like Elisha, or like Solomon, and receive such powerful answers to prayer? Now, last Sunday, we were dealing with the manner of praying. That is, some of the physical aspects of when to pray, how to pray, what position to pray in, and so forth. Remember, we covered the fact that David prayed early in the morning, and by rising early, you show God a level of commitment you cannot show otherwise. Then we saw that praying three times a day, interrupting your activities to pray, shows God a level of fervency that he wants to see. And I rejoice in a couple members of this congregation that called me this week to tell me, you were doing that. I mean, that rejoices a pastor's heart. What do you think rejoices a pastor's heart but hearing, as John said, that his children walk in truth? And indeed, and indeed, I was rejoiced. That's a pun. I know you wouldn't be able to figure that out. Indeed, I rejoice. I don't rejoice in words so much as indeed I rejoice. Now, let's remember some of the other things we covered last Sunday. Weeping while praying is very important. God said of one man, I have seen thy tears. Who was that man? Hezekiah. Great. Fasting and depriving ourselves of some carnal pleasure shows our fervency before God. When was the last time you went without food for 24 hours to show God that you were serious about a matter of prayer? It is rare in America for men to pray that way, but it was not rare in the Word of God. Even Ahab knew that if he fasted, God might have mercy even on Ahab. And God did have mercy on Ahab. God had mercy on a city of Nineveh with a great number of inhabitants because they fasted and prayed. Our Lord was a man of fasting and prayer. Paul was a man of fasting and prayer. Keep that in mind if you want to pray powerfully. Kneeling to pray is a scriptural practice. Kneeling places you in a position of vulnerability. It's a position of humility. You know, it's a sad thing that men kneel to ask women to marry them. Pitiful, isn't it? Have you ever heard of that? Men kneeling to ask women to marry them. Well, anyway, that's a, that's a side point that you can forget. <laughs> Kneeling is a position of humility. It's a position of vulnerability. It's a position of begging. Maybe that's why men kneel. <laughs> I'm begging. I know there's nothing for you to want to marry me, but please marry me. But when we kneel, we're showing those three things. Humility, we're low, God's high. Vulnerability, we're low before the king. If he wants to kick our heads, he may. And then we're begging. 
were beseeching him for mercy. You can read in Scripture about Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane falling on his face to pray as he stepped apart from the disciples to pray there in the Garden of Gethsemane. Prayer can be made in any position, however. Thank God for for 2 Samuel chapter 7. You can pray in your automobile because David prayed while sitting. David prayed while sitting. You could get yourself in trouble if you try to pray while kneeling in your automobile. You may pray in any position. However, try kneeling from time to time because Scripture shows men kneeling when they pray. You can pray anywhere at any time. Prayer can be done from the heart. Hannah did that. Eli thought she was drunk. Her mouth was moving and no words were coming out. She was praying in her heart. Nehemiah prayed before King Artaxerxes. A one-verse prayer. It couldn't be too long because the king had asked a question. And before he answered, he prayed. Very quickly, right there in the presence of the king, in his heart, Nehemiah prayed. That's Nehemiah chapter 2, about the first two verses. Pray alone as a personal habit. Jesus Christ was a man of private prayer. Emphasize private prayer. I know I emphasized earlier this morning praying with a partner. But praying with a partner, you can get into habit, and you can get into praying because the other partner is putting you up to it, and you don't want to be convicted or condemned by them that you're not as spiritual as you ought to be. Those things can happen. None of those things can happen in private prayer where you do it in a closet. Do you realize the only reason that would motivate you to go into a closet and pray where no one would catch you praying? You know what your reason must be? You want to get through to God, and He's the only one you care about. And Jesus was a man of private prayer. I have a number of references in the outline you can turn to. We looked at a couple. Jesus said, You go and pray in secret to your Father which seeth in secret. I'll reward you openly. You pray openly to be seen of men, and you've got your reward. You've got your answer. That's all you're going to get. The vision of men. They saw you do it. Families ought to pray together. Remember, we looked at the example of Jacob getting his whole family prepared to go and seek the Lord. Prayer partners, which I mentioned earlier today from Matthew 18, 19. Paul and Silas prayed together. Jesus took Peter, James, and John up into a mountain to pray. He didn't take them all. He took a limited number. A few prayer partners is an excellent way to pray. Public prayer meetings are things that we will practice and have practiced in this church, regardless of whether the Arminians do it regardless of what men may think of public prayer meetings, we will have them because the New Testament had them and had them often. Now, let's look at Psalm chapter 28. Psalm 28, and we'll look at another physical aspect of praying, which I was going to do last Sunday evening, but ran out of time because I wanted to cover it thoroughly. Verse 2. Hear the voice of my supplications, David said, when I cry unto thee, when I lift up my hands toward thy holy oracle. David here asks God to hear his prayer when he cries, and we all, that is part of praying, when you cry, you ask God for something. But in addition to that, there's a physical movement that takes place, lifting up of hands toward God's holy oracle. Now, God's holy oracle is no longer in this earth. There was an Ark of the Covenant once upon a time. And even though they had raiders of the lost Ark, it is not; it has not been found today. We don't have that holy oracle in the earth. I mean, God had the Gentiles take care of 
Israel and their temple and their holy oracle and their Ten Commandments and everything they had. Our holy oracle is in heaven itself, Jesus Christ now appearing in the presence of God for us. But lifting up of the hands. Now I know what goes through some of your minds. You turn your television on and you see some woman preacher in a charismatic church where they're all babbling in tongues and they lift up their hands and you say to yourself, I could never do that. Satan's effective, isn't he? If you say you'll never do that, Satan's won. You know what he's done? He's taken truth and corrupted it with air, and so you're going to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Satan's effective, isn't he? I'm not worried about any of you running off to uh, join a tongue-speaking church, but I am worried about some of you be overreacting so far against a tongue-speaking church. You won't do what they do that is scriptural. I am more worried about that influence of error in this congregation than the direct influence. We looked at Psalm 28 in verse 2. Look at Psalm 63. Psalm 63. What I wanted you to see in Psalm 28 is where you lift your hands toward his holy oracle. Where was that in the times of David at Jerusalem? Where did Daniel pray? What, what did he face? Jerusalem. When Solomon dedicated the temple, where did he ask God to, he asked God to hear prayers that were directed toward his temple at Jerusalem, where God dwelt. God dwells in heaven now, so we lift our hands up. Psalm 63 and verse 4, Thus will I bless thee while I live. I will lift up my hands in thy name. When we pray in the name of God, we lift up our hands. The first reason we've seen so far is because we point out where God is at. When you talk to someone on earth, you look them in the eye. If you don't know how to look people in the eye when you talk to them, you are not a good conversationalist. You've met people like that. Isn't it interesting talking to someone who always looks at the ground or looks down at their hands while they're talking to you? Don't you find them interesting people? I mean, throw something at me if I ever do that. It's pitiful. You look people in the eyes because the eye is the eye of the soul. And you can communicate through your eyes. You communicate every morning, every Sunday morning to me. Some of you are 25% asleep. Some of you are 75% asleep. Some of you aren't asleep. We communicate with our eyes to men. You can't see God, but you lift up your hands toward him, pointing out that you realize where he's at. And when you lift up your hands, guess where it tells where you're at? Underneath. <laughs> Down. You're below him, and you have to look up to him. If you're going to get anything, he's going to have to send it down to you. Look at Psalm 134. Psalm 134. If anyone gets do drowsy in here because of the temperature, go lower the temperature. Psalm 134, a short psalm describing prayer. Verse 2, lift up your hands in the sanctuary and bless the Lord. This isn't only private prayer, but public prayer. Lift up the hands. Psalm 134. Look at Psalm 141. Verse 2. Let my prayer be set forth before thee as incense. Isn't that what we want? We want our prayer to ascend up into the throne room of God like they do in the book of the Revelation. How do you get them there? Let my prayer be set forth before thee as incense, and the lifting up of my hands 
as the evening sacrifice. That evening sacrifice was a little lamb, cut throat cut morning and evening, two lambs a day. That evening sacrifice was very important to God. And the Israelites took no pains, took great pains, excuse me. They would take all pains to maintain that perpetual daily sacrifice. David here is saying, let the lifting up of my hands be equal to that in prayer. Now come over to the book of Lamentations. We don't appeal to the book of Lamentations very often. Hopefully you can find it. It follows Jeremiah because Jeremiah wrote it. They are the lamentations, the crying, the boo-hooing of Jeremiah the prophet. He had a lot to cry for. Jerusalem was leveled during his existence. During his ministry, Jerusalem was leveled and he fled to Egypt with the rest of the rebellious remnant that Nebuchadnezzar did not carry captive. Lamentations chapter 2, and look at verse 19. Here Jeremiah is exhorting Israel, Arise, cry out in the night. In the beginning of the watches, pour out thine heart like water before the face of the Lord. Lift up thy hands toward him for the life of thy young children that faint for hunger in the top of every street. You want to pray for your children? Lift up your hands. Lamentations, chapter 2, and verse 19. Look at chapter 3, and verse 41, and here is the second reason why you lift up hands. Let us lift up our heart with our hands unto God in the heavens. When you lift up your hands, you lift up your heart. You show God where your heart is directed. You say, well, that's just the hands. It's more important where your heart's at than your hands. That's true. That's true. But does that mean you don't lift your hands? Jeremiah said, lift up your hands to show where your heart's at. Your heart is directed Godward. Set your affection on things above, not on the earth. How do you show God? In an outward form. Lift up the hands. Two reasons so far. One, point out where God's at. Two, lift up your hands heart by lifting up your hands. Do you remember the battle that Moses and Israel had with Amalek in the book of Exodus? Do you remember? I know that not all of you remember. There was a battle that's recorded for us in Exodus chapter 32, Exodus chapter 17. We'll not turn there. They had a battle with Amalek. Moses got the prime box seat on a mountain overviewing the battle. And as long as he held up his hands... Israel prevailed. When he got tired, and you get tired rather quickly, try it sometime. When he got tired and his arms would fall down, Amalek would prevail, and they'd begin winning the battle. So he got two aides, Aaron and Hur, to hold up his arms. As long as his hands were up, when your hands are up, you're begging God. While his hands were up, they prevailed. When his hands fell, Amalek prevailed. Keep that in mind if you need further encouragement to lift up holy hands. Oh, when Solomon dedicated the temple, I told you this last Sunday, I believe he was on his knees with his hands uplifted toward heaven. And when he finished his prayer, fire fell from heaven and hit his 900-square-foot brazen altar, golden altar. can't remember whether it was, I believe it was brazen and gold around the temple. The temple was gold, brazen altar, 900 square feet, and sucked up all of its contents there. God lit 
the sacrifice himself with fire from heaven. He prayed on his knees with his hands uplifted toward heaven. What that must have been a magnificent sight. With the, with the gold and the brass and 120,000 sheep that he offered, 22,000 oxen, and Solomon's prayer. And it's a tremendous prayer. Now look at First Timothy chapter 2 and verse 8. First Timothy 2, 8, I can hear someone saying that all that lifting up of hands is from the Old Testament. You can't find that in the New Testament. What they overlooked is the eighth verse of the second chapter of the book of First Timothy. First Timothy 2, 8, Paul said, I will, therefore, that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. We've dealt without wrath. You better deal with other people without wrath if you want God to deal with you without wrath. We've dealt without doubting. When you pray, you better pray with faith. Don't doubt. He that doubteth is damned if he eat. He that doubteth is damned if he pray. He that doubteth shall not receive anything of the Lord. No doubting, no wrath when we pray. 1 Timothy 2.8, but lift up holy hands. And here's the third reason, or the third aspect of lifting up hands you better be careful of. Hands in the Word of God are what God considers to be a evidence of crime. At Michigan National Bank and at many banks across this country, they've progressed in their deterrence of bank robbers to the degree that what they have now in the drawers of many tellers are nice bundles of $100 bills that have been especially prepared with dye. And the teller will gladly give you one of those bundles because once it touches you or anything, it will leave its dye. They have a number of things. Believe That's not the only thing they use. I mean, there's bundles that are wired and there's buttons to push that are direct lines to the police department. But there are bundles with dye. Do you know why? Because you pick that poor thing up and you're going to have dye wherever you put it. Once it is triggered, it gives off either smoke in some cases or dye in others so that you can be tracked. I mean, if they catch you later and you, you deny that you were there at the, at the crime, you deny that you committed it, but you've got two green hands sticking out of your blue sport coat, you're had. You're had. Uh, haven't we ever caught our kids that way? You know, I didn't take a cookie, Mommy. Crumbs all over their fingers. I mean, don't we catch with their hands? Why do you think, what did Pilate do before he said crucify him? Washed his hands. Why? To get them dirty? It's a symbolic act that I am innocent. I am innocent of this act. I'm putting it on the Jews. He washed his hands of it. Let me show you a few verses on this point. We need to lift up holy hands. Isn't that what Paul said? Holy hands mean you better not have sin. When you put those hands up before God, God has great vision. If there's crumbs, he sees that. 
You know, if there's something under your fingernails that gives you away as having been at the scene of a crime like clay, he sees it. If there's blood on your hands because you've hated someone in your heart, let's not worry about outright murder. He sees that. And when you lift up your hands before God, the third reason you do it is you're showing God, I'm free from sin. They're all confessed. I'm not guilty. Reward me according to the integrity of my heart. Don't lift him up, friends, if there's anything on them. All things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Look at Job chapter 16. You said, I didn't know there was theology behind lifting up hands. There is. There is. You're pointing out where God exists. You're lifting up your heart and showing where your affections lie. And third... You're showing to God, you're saying, God, search me and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and look at my hands. They are clean. Job 16 and verse 17. Not for any injustice in mine hands, also my prayer is pure. Notice the connection. No injustice in my hands. I've not taken advantage of a widow. I've not taken advantage of a child. My hands are just. My prayer is pure. Notice the connection there. Psalm chapter 26. Psalm 26 and verse 6. Listen to this. Psalm 26 and verse 6. I will wash mine hands in innocency. So, what does so mean? In this manner will I compass thine altar, O Lord. Where's the altar? The place where you go and meet God. What do we call it? I mean, that's where we pray now. We approach God's throne, which is our altar, where we pray at, where we seek God. How are we going to compass the place of prayer? With hands that have been washed in innocency. We're not talking about using dial soap at your sink. We're talking about being innocent in your behavior. And when you lift those hands up, you're saying to God, go ahead and inspect them. I can think of a real graphic illustration from my childhood. All of us children used to pick and chew our fingernails, which is a despicable habit. I mean, it's, it's like cats, you know, who clean themselves in certain ways. If you chew your fingernails, it's about as clean and as cool and kosher of a habit as cats. Well, my family had a rule that we weren't to do that. And so at dinner, at the dinner table, up on the table come the hands for an inspection. See, in the hands, you can see immediately that particular crime for sure because the nails are on the hands. And we had appropriate punishments if we didn't, I mean, if we chewed our fingernails. For instance, we could be held down by the rest of the family and ice cubes put on our backs until they melted. We had, it was a funny punishment. That's what we did in our home. My dad did that because he had the greatest problem. And so us children got great delight in putting dad down the floor and putting ice cubes down his back because he couldn't control his nail picking habit. He didn't chew them. He just loved to sit in nervous energy, pick his nails. You can take that up in a manicuring class. Hands. You know, the Bible talks about feet 
that are swift to shed blood, hands that have been washed in innocency, as we read here in Psalm 26. Look at Isaiah chapter 1. There was a problem with the Israelites in the days of Isaiah. They were coming before God. They were bringing sacrifices. They were holding solemn assemblies. And God said they stink. Do you know why? Because of verse 15. And when ye spread forth your hands, notice, oh, they're praying ever so well according to the series they had heard on effectual prayer. They were spreading forth their hands and God said, I will hide mine eyes from you. Yea, when ye make many prayers. They were persistent. I will not hear. Why? Your hands are full of blood. Held back wages from employees. Not given enough to orphans in the gleanings of your field. Oh, you know that you could invent a tractor or a combine that would get those corners a little more thoroughly than the previous generation or you might set the fence post back a little bit so that you could get it all. God saw all that when you lifted up your hands. It was as if you had ketchup all over them and the blood was just dripping off them. And although they prayed persistently and although they prayed with their hands up, although they held solemn assemblies, public prayer meetings, although they brought their sacrifices at the appointed time, God did not hear because they did not lift up holy hands 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 8. One more verse, James chapter 4. You know, this goes back to the character or the subject of prayer. That is, the person who prays. Remember, he must be righteous. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man. But the, the point is this. You disclose your righteousness when you lift up your hands. You're saying to God, Look me over. Check me out. No crime on my hands. You better have them washed in innocency when you lift them up in such a way. James chapter 4 and verse 8. Draw nigh to God, and He will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Now, can you see it all go together? Jeremiah said, we lift up our hearts with our hands. Our affections in all sin comes from our hearts. When you lift up your hands, you are saying, God, look me over completely. My heart, my motives, my, the intents of my heart, what's on my hands? And if they're holy, reward me and give me the answer. If they're not, you're in trouble. You're basically asking God for judgment saying, here I am, and he sees it. Lift up holy hands everywhere is what Paul decreed for the New Testament church. Now, it says when you pray, what should we do in our church? It doesn't say when you sing. It doesn't say when we give announcements. It says when we pray. But it's talking about men who are doing the praying who lift up their hands. When we have our prayers, though, in this church, are you praying with me or not? You better be praying. We ought to be praying together. I may be verbalizing the words, but we're all praying. If you choose to lift your hands up, you are welcome to do so in this sanctuary. Remembering the three reasons why we do it. We point out where God is at and that we are beneath Him, dependent upon Him. 
we show where our hearts are at by lifting them up before God and we acknowledge that we are innocent and God should reward accordingly. I lift up my hands from time to time. You're welcome to do so from time to time when we pray. How about the saying of amen? When someone says amen at the end of a prayer, what does it mean? Amen is a solemn expression of concurrence, that is agreement, or ratification of a prayer or wish. It means, be it so, really. Be it so, really. You're agreeing, you're ratifying, you're confirming a prayer or a wish. It means that you concur in a formal statement or confession of faith. It is so in truth. It is so in truth. That's basically a statement. You're saying it is so in truth. When we acknowledge our sinfulness, if someone else says, Oh God, we are miserable sinners, have mercy on us. Amen. Anyone can say, because it is so in truth. You're acknowledging that that is a true statement. When someone says, Oh Lord, we beseech thee that you would give us wisdom. Be it so really, you can say amen. Because that is agreeing and ratifying that request. You agree that you want that wisdom also. Saying amen at the end of a prayer is very scriptural. Very common in the Old Testament. Look at First Chronicles chapter 16. First Chronicles chapter 16. I'll bet some charismatic preachers would pay me for what I just taught you about lifting up hands. First Chronicles chapter 16, verse 36. This is David's prayer of thanksgiving for all that had been brought for the Lord's temple. Verse 36, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel forever and ever. That's the end of his prayer. And all the people said, Amen, and praise the Lord. Maybe you've been in church services where the minister is presumptuous enough, and I may be presumptuous enough, to say, and all the Lord's people said, Amen. He's reminding, you know, that may sound presumptuous, is it? He's reminding what the Bible says. Because you find a lot of churches today where religion is so insincere and members become so much spectators instead of participants, they just sit there like bumps on a log expecting to be entertained by special music, choirs, Sunday school contests, numerical announcements about what's been accomplished in the bus ministry, and so forth. They're, they're just used to being entertained and filled with and, and, and observing and, and spectating instead of being a participant. I don't find anything wrong with that statement used sporadically. I mean, used every time the preacher needs 10 extra seconds to think about what he's going to say next or to boost him emotionally is a pitiful reason for doing it. But to get confirmation of a prayer or to get confirmation of a point, perfectly scriptural. I don't have a problem with that at all, and neither does the Word of God. Look at Nehemiah chapter 5. Nehemiah chapter 5. Amen means, be it so really. When you're asking for something, that's for a request. It is so, and it can also mean, it is so in truth. When a statement is made and you're 
agreeing with that statement. Numbers chapter, Nehemiah, excuse me, chapter 5 and verse 13. Also I shook my lap and said, So God shake out every man from his house and from his labor that performeth not this promise. Even thus be he shaken out and emptied. Now this is a curse upon the nation of Israel given before God. And all the congregation said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did according to this promise. When you say amen, you better do what you're vowing. It is so in truth with you when you say that. And all the people did it. I like to see that in conjunction with saying the word amen. Look at Psalm, I mean, Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 6. Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 6. Now, this will put the two things together that I've mentioned so far this morning. We're really going to get wild. Nehemiah 8, 6. This is one of my favorite public meetings in the Word of God. They got together, their little ones, their children, and they read in the book of the law of God. I mean, they just read in that thing and gave the sense and caused the people to understand the reading, and they had a celebration feast at the end of this day because they understood the Word of God. We ought to have that from time to time. But here's part of it. Nehemiah 8 and verse 6. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, with lifting up of their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Now there's the lifting up of hands and the saying of Amen when a man blesses the Lord. And in prayer, we certainly bless the Lord, the great God. That's Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 6. Look at Psalm 106. Psalm 106 and verse 48. Psalm 106 verse 48. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. Psalm 106 and verse 48. And let all the people say, Amen. Praise ye the Lord. Now notice what the man who does the praying says at the end of his prayer. And let all the people say, Amen. Don't bowl me over, folks. I have sensitive ears. Numbers chapter 5. You say, why do you have to look up so many references for such a small point? Is, you, are you make, is, is the fact of you making a public vow a small point. I want you to know the ramifications of you saying amen. I'm giving you the instruction we ought to do it. Do you know the ramifications? Numbers chapter 5. I'll paraphrase this for you. This is a test of jealousy where a man could take his wife before the priest and have her drink a potion. If she'd been guilty of adultery, she swelled up there in the spot and, and uh, the Lord judged her right there. If she was innocent, nothing happened. She conceived seed. They had a son, and they went happily on their way. But when the priest comes before the woman, he says in verse 21, this is the second half of the verse, The Lord make thee a curse and an oath among thy people. When the Lord doth make thy thigh to rot and thy belly to swell. And verse 22, And this water that causeth the curse shall go into thy bowels to make thy belly to swell and thy thigh to rot. And the woman shall say, Amen, Amen. 
if she was guilty, it'd be hard to say it. <laughs> you know what you're saying? Be it so really. Be it so really. If I'm guilty of adultery, let it happen. I mean, there, there was fear in those days for committing adultery. I mean, today, if you haven't committed adultery, you're in the minority and you're weird. You're jealous. You're overprotective. Can you imagine the fear that that would put in a nation? And to watch that happen a few times, the belly to swell and the thigh to rot? Amen? Amen. When you're saying amen, you're agreeing? Listen, when I... Don't we read some psalms that describe God's judgment on hypocrites? And we read passages of God's judgment on hypocrites? When you say amen, be prepared to take the consequences. This is serious business when you come before God. And that's the way it ought to be. Deuteronomy chapter 27. Deuteronomy chapter 27. Now, I like Deuteronomy 27 because that, this means you can say it more than once in one service. Some people think if they screw up their courage for 35 minutes and finally get an amen out, that they've run their course for the day. Look at this passage. Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 14. And the Levites shall speak and say unto all the men of Israel with a loud voice, Cursed be the man that maketh any graven or molten image, an abomination unto the Lord, the work of the hands of the craftsmen, and putteth it in a secret place. And all the people shall answer and say, Amen. If we do that, we deserve the curse. Verse 16, Cursed be he that setteth light by his father or his mother. And all the people shall say, Amen. Do you realize the effect that would have on a congregation? Everyone together? When the minister would stand up and say, Cursed be he that setteth light by his father or his mother. That is, to speak of them disrespectfully. Cursed be anyone that ever speaks disrespectfully, speaks lightly of his father or his mother, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be he that removeth his neighbor's landmark, and all the people shall say, Amen. And that reminds you of a few duties, wouldn't it, every Sunday? Amen. Be it so really. Be it so really. I mean, if you'd moved a stone at the corner of your field, guess what you'd do that afternoon? You'd put it back. Wouldn't that be great? I want you to think about what you're doing when you say amen. You say, that's all Old Testament again. You're running into the same problem you did with lifting up of hands, but I bailed myself out of that problem, didn't I? With 1 Timothy 2.8, and I'll bail myself out of this one with 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. I want to communicate to each one of you, church is not where you go and sit and warm a seat and some minister gets up and a choir gets up and a soloist gets up and entertains you. It is participation. It's all of us worshiping God. Yes, I may do some teaching, but guess what you're doing? You're doing some agreeing. I may do some exhorting, and you're doing some agreeing. I may do some cursing, and you're doing some agreeing. I may do some blessing, you're doing some agreeing. When Paul had a service, I know one thing, it wasn't like it's set up today, where they've got a little ritual that they run through, and everyone else just sits there and watches. It, we're all, 
together worshiping God. I just happen to be helping direct us all do it. Hands can fly up. Amens can come from your throats. I get sick of modern religion. It's just a, it's a nightclub act. And I've seen, I mean, how many of you have been to Armenian churches in Sunday evening service? Many times that's exactly what it is. They shut the lights out, a spotlight comes down the stage, and there's someone twanging away on their guitar. It's nothing but entertainment. It stinks. Amen. This, we're worshiping together. We ought to lift up our voices. You know those passages I just read? It didn't say some of the people, did it? It said all the people said amen. Why? Because they were all serious when they came together to worship. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Paul in the, in the 14th chapter of 1 Corinthians is saying edification is the, re the reason for the New Testament church, not entertainment. I know they start with E, but edification. Amen. That is instruction, building up, exhortation is what the New Testament church is all about. And he says, I'm going to speak with a, in a language and in words that you can understand so that we can accomplish that purpose of edification. If I'm babbling away in an unknown tongue, you're not going to know what I'm saying. In fact, he says, I'm not going to know what I'm saying. And therefore, it's worthless. Wife, do you remember this past week? We watched a charismatic preacher on television who said... He, he was teaching about tongues, praying in tongues. He was preaching on prayer. And he was saying how superior it is to pray in tongues. That was his whole argument. When the whole argument of the New Testament is, don't pray that way. Tongues were never given to aid prayer. Tongues were given to be done before other men so that other men could see, wow, he doesn't know Italian. And what's he speaking in Italian for? It was a sign gift. But this man was trying to teach that we ought to pr that praying in tongues was a superior way because it was God's language. It'd be a cold day in Hades when I believe that Italian is God's language. Listen, if you'll pray in English, if you'll pray in English, I believe you're praying in God's language. Do you want to know why? You look around this world and see which language group he's blessed. With his word, it's English. You say you're being sacrilegious when you use Hades. Listen, when you can find a Bible verse with Hades in it, I'll admit my sacrilege. 1 Corinthians 14, 16, Paul says, I'm going to do everything with the understanding so that when I bless or when some other man blesses in the congregation, you will know when to say amen. Do you know what? He assumed it was going to take place. He didn't even teach it. Do you know why? He didn't have to teach it. His people knew to say amen. Because if you've read the Old Testament, it's throughout the Old Testament. I mean, the Psalms end with amen and amen. 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 Sometimes two amens. Verse 16. If Paul is not speaking with an understandable language, he says, else... When thou shalt bless with the Spirit, how shall he that occupieth the room of the unlearned say amen at thy giving of thanks, seeing he understandeth not what thou sayest? Even the unlearned are supposed to say amen. If you're babbling in tongues, you don't know when to say amen. 
I know one time to say it when they finish. And you can say amen that that's over with. But we're not going to have tongues in this church. The only tongue we're going to have here is English. Paul assumed that men would say amen at the giving of thanks. And we thank God often in this congregation. We ought to hear amens. You're agreeing with it. If you don't do it, what are you here for? Don't you agree? You're so depressed and discouraged you can't do it? You're so timid you can't do it. I wonder what Miriam would do. <laughs> I'd probably have to rebuke her to keep her timbrel in her purse. You say, you don't know that. Well, when I read Exodus 15, it didn't take, Moses didn't have to say, Miriam, would you strike up a dance, please? <laughs> she jumped to her feet. They were active in worship. I know Billy could take me to, Gene could take me to some churches where they're more active in worship. And you know what? We can learn. We can learn. And I mean that. We don't have to learn everything, but we can learn. They participate in their worship, don't they? The Old Testament did. Do you know where this non-participation comes from? Where do all abominations come from? the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. You want to see a dead religion where you go and are simply a spectator? Go to a Catholic mass where they're up there baking their cakes and making their gods and doing everything and you're, you don't do anything. I mean, nowadays they have a little bit of congregational singing, but if you go and listen to it, it's dead. You are a spectator for 60 minutes. You sit there and let them perform for you in their fancy robes and then you walk out the door. That is not New Testament worship. Someone says, and this is scriptural to defend the position, some man will say, but I don't like those interruptions when I hear amens. I love hearing those interruptions myself. Interruptions to hear agreement from the rest of our brethren. And if you don't like the interruptions, have you ever read your New Testament? How many times does Paul, in the middle of his letter, just cut loose with an amen? Right in the middle of his letter. You want to see a couple? Look at Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Now this is important. Paul can't even write a letter without saying amen. How many times have you put amen in a letter? That really shows you've got a problem. I like problems like that though. Paul did it. I've told you before, Paul has little outbursts in the middle of his writing. I mean, he just loses control and starts blessing God off the subject except it's always on the subject when you're dealing with God and His doctrine, and He'll throw an amen in. Verse 25, who changed the truth of God into a lie. He's talking about idol worshipers. And worshiped and served the creature more than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Paul says, right in the middle. Now you keep right on going in verse 26. Now was that the end of his thought? No way. Well, is verse 25 the end of a thought? Not on your life. But he just blessed God the Creator. Amen, he says, to ratify that. Ever thought about those amens before? Do you read your Bible too quickly? I've, I'm not calling on you to read ten chapters a day. If you can read one chapter a day and read every word, you'll learn more. Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. You say, you don't have very many of these. <laughs> How long do you want to stay? 
You, you know what? You read over that word and you don't know where it's at. If I asked you right now to raise verses that have amen in it, you wouldn't know. You'd be amazed. Romans 9 and verse 5. Speaking of Israel, whose are the fathers and of whom as concerning the flesh Christ came. Now he's speaking of Christ who is over all. God blessed forever. Amen. He says in Romans 9, 5. He's speaking of Christ. Jesus Christ is over all. Jesus Christ is God blessed forever. Amen. Amen. Isn't that interesting? Amen. Amen. We, we ought... I am not trying to create something indecent and in disorder. And some will say, well, it's not decently and in order to say amen. Well, then we've got Paul coming out both sides of his mouth in the same chapter. 1 Corinthians 14. Amen is a very scriptural habit to be done with public prayer. See, we're on the subject of prayer, not the subject of amen. You'd be surprised. We're still on prayer. When we pray together, when you say amen and mean it, you have prayed the prayer I prayed. Or if you led in prayer and I say amen, I've prayed with you. And believe me, I have. When you're saying those words, I'm saying them with you and I'm saying a few extra to boot. And if one prayer has an effect with God, what's 30 going to have? What's 50 going to have? When we're all in agreement together and we're verbalizing that agreement the Bible way. Let's move on and see if we can't cover a little bit more before we close for this morning. Just a little bit more. That is the end of the manner of praying. The things we covered this morning is the use of hands and the use of the word amen. The nature of prayer I want to cover and we'll close for this morning. The nature of prayer is a few things about the prayer itself. Prayer does not need to be long. I don't think I could preach long enough to convince you that prayer doesn't need to be long. We have this Pharisee mentality that when we cut loose, the longer we pray, the more spiritual we are. And watch it when you're prayer partners. Watch it very carefully. You know, one way to prove that you're not praying to be heard of men is to pray short. You can do that publicly. When we, I limit the number of requests we have in this service for a reason. I don't want things to become indecent and in disorder. I want you to concentrate with fervency on a few requests. If we had 105 requests at a prayer meeting, guess what would happen? You'd be less... What does quantity always do to value? It dilutes it. I mean, that's is plain. You wouldn't even get through a list of 105. Most of you. We have a limited number to concentrate on them. And we have a limited number you can pray quickly. Don't pray long. Now, you can pray long, but when you pray long in public, you may be giving yourself away. If you want to be safe, pray short. If you were to study all the prayers in the Bible, and I've read a number of them over the last few months, they're short. They are sh very short. How long was the prayer of Solomon this morning? How long would it take you to say that? 15 seconds? 20 seconds? And it's over. You say, well, it wasn't a very important matter. If God appeared to you and said, ask what I shall give you, and he admits the fact that he's a child and he's king and he needs wisdom, that's not an important matter. But he, he unloaded all that in about 15 seconds. He mentioned his father. He mentioned God's mercy to his father, David, king of Israel. 
pray short. You know what? It's easier to be fervent for a short prayer. You start praying long, your mind starts wandering. You start thinking of things you need to do when you get up. Your mind, have you ever lost track in the middle of a prayer? Ooh, you feel guilty, don't you? You've been praying along and all of a sudden you realize you don't know what you're saying and your mind's off on what you need to do when you get up from your knees. That's pitiful. One way to safeguard against that is to pray short. Long prayers characterize Pharisees. Matthew 23 and verse 14. And if this morning you're trying to read out of your NIV, you won't find it. But Matthew 23 and verse 14 says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. You know that. For a man to show that he's trying to show that he's religious or that he's spiritual, he'll pray long. You don't need to pray long. Have a format for prayer, and I'm going to give you one before we finish this series, and move right through it. Ever read the Lord's Prayer? How long was that? I mean, you can say that prayer in 15 seconds. And it's over. And Jesus said, pray after this manner. Isn't that interesting? I know what happens to some of you. When you hear me praying about prayer and wrestling with God, you go home, and some of you may say, well, I'm going to give an hour in prayer every day to God. I'll tell you what will happen with that. N 98 times out of 100. That hour, after three days, will so discourage your flesh because your flesh is weak. And when you know your flesh is weak, guess what your spirit better be? Reasonable. <laughs> when your flesh is weak, be reasonable. If you try to do something like that, after the third day, you'll quit. If I can get everyone in this congregation getting up to pray for a minute, you say, well, that sounds ridiculous. It'd be longer than 90% of the prayers in the Bible. If I could get you out of bed to make a concerted effort in a special way, fervently, with holy hands, in the way that I've described to pray one minute a day every day and to do it consistently, God will move in this congregation. Amen. Don't worry about praying long. Shut that Pharisee thinking down. Solomon said, when you enter into the house of God in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, let your words be many, few, or none of the above. Few. He said, let your words be few when you enter into the house of God. Do you know what happens when you start praying long? You start saying all sorts of things. Oh, God, if you'll give me this request, I'll serve you. And Oh, wait a minute. What was I saying? I mean, you'll start making vows in your prayer that you wouldn't otherwise make, but you're making them because of the multitude of words. Remember Solomon said to the multitude of business, dreams come. You get praying too long, and guess what's going to be involved in your praying? Dreams you'll be starting to promise God all sorts of things. Be careful with that. Remember the prophets of Baal? <laughs> Were they known for short prayers or long prayers? Long prayers, all day long. Elijah waited and sat by, mocking them until the evening sacrifice, and he got up and his prayer took about two verses. And which one got the fire from heaven? The two-verse prayer. You say, don't I need time, though, to show my fervency? Uh-uh. Sometimes you want to show fervency through length? Go ahead. And I mean that. Go ahead and do it sometimes. You don't need length to show fervency. Where in the Word of God can you teach that? This is important. I, I, I watch my children. I remember as a child. I remember as a pastor. When you pray 
You're thinking, well, I need to think of a few more things to say. I mean, this prayer just hasn't been long enough. Cut that thinking. Cut that thinking. Make your statements. Listen, you can deal with a matter in one sentence. You don't need to elaborate and approach it from 14 different angles. One sentence and it's over with. Read the Bible. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those that sin against us. Lead us not into temptation. Isn't that amazing? Short, concise, brief, to the point. You can pray fervently with short prayers. I'm emphasizing this point for practical reasons. If you try to pray too long, your flesh will become discouraged and you'll be asleep like the disciples. Remember? I don't want you asleep. If you could have a short time of... Listen, if all of you men roused your wives out of bed before you went to work and the two of you got down on your knees and prayed for one minute, listen, I'd, I'd have champagne out on ice. Now, all of you men, think about that for a minute. We don't need... I don't need to preach for hour-long prayers, do I? If all of us got up and got our wives out of bed and prayed for one minute together in the morning before we went to work, seriously, fervently, for one minute, would it be progress or would it be backsliding? Christian life is simple, isn't it? God hasn't asked anything of us we cannot do. Boy, if everyone was doing that in this church, I'd rejoice. I remember Brother Jeff Oley one time standing up here and telling you what his favorite prayer was when Asa won a battle over one million Ethiopians recorded in Second Chronicles chapter 14. And Brother Jeff pointed out that the prayer was one verse long. And he won a victory over one million Ethiopians. You know, the apostles prayed to replace Judas, to replace an apostle. Wouldn't that take weeks? Acts chapter 1, a few verses, is all it took. Long prayers are not wrong. Jesus Christ prayed all night on several occasions. Jacob wrestled till the breaking of day with God. Moses prayed twice for 40 days for God to have mercy on Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 9 and verse 25, Moses says twice. I besought God for you for 40 days and nights so that he wouldn't destroy you as he had said he would. Long prayers are not wrong, but use them sparingly. If we're going to follow the Bible in its example to us, short, fervent, concise, to the point, prayers are what get the job done. God wants to know why you're talking so long. You know what he thinks? He wonders if you're bordering on being a Pharisee. If you want to tell your wife that I'm up to 60 minutes a day now, or if you want to call your pastor and tell him you're up to 60 minutes a day now. Now, that doesn't mean you can't put time around your prayer of reading the Bible. Listen, if you came to me with some, peti you know, some little petition and you took 30 minutes getting it out to me, you know, you're, you're beating all around and you're describing it ten times, ten different ways. What would I think of you? What would you think of me? Maybe I preach that way sometimes. <laughs> when I take an hour on amen and lifting up of hands, I wonder. If we repeat ourselves too many times, it dilutes the effectiveness and you wonder, what's wrong with this person? 
Well, think about God listening to your prayers. It's amazing, all the prayers in the Bible and how short they are. And we've been over a number. I hope that you'll remember some of those prayers to see how short, in fact, they were. Don't use repetitions. The Catholics use repetitions. Remember their rosary? It has 55 beads around it. You pray through it three times for the three mysteries or something like that. There's 165, there's 150 prayers to Mary and 15 prayers to the Lord, 15 Our Fathers and 150 Hail Marys. They're the ones that pray by beads. Don't you pray by repetition. Don't repeat the same prayer. Don't repeat phrases in those prayers unless you're thinking about them. Why, you can read Psalm 136. In Psalm 136, David sure repeated himself. For his mercy endureth forever. You, you all know that Psalm. Every single verse. For his mercy endureth forever. For his mercy endureth forever. So not all repetitions are wrong. But be careful. Be careful of your repetitions. Remember I mentioned the word Lord last Sunday. Lord, I pray that you will help brother so-and-so, Lord. And Lord, help me in my job, Lord. And you, Lord, Lord, Lord. Do you know what you're saying? Now David used Lord. O Lord God, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, he uses it about seven times in ten verses. That's not, that's pretty good repetition. But David knew what he was saying, and I hope you know what you're saying when you use repetitions. Carefully consider what you're saying. There can be scriptural repetitions, but don't you dare start praying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians for two hours. <laughs> Who did that? The Ephesians. O Baal, hear us! O Baal, hear us! Who prayed that way? The prophets of Baal. Watch your repetitions. You wouldn't repeat yourself over and over to me. Brother Crosby, I want to talk to you, Brother Crosby. Brother Crosby, I need your help, Brother Crosby. But, I mean, listen, I'd slap your face. I'd ask for smelling salts. What is God thinking? You say, he doesn't think that way about his saints. He doesn't. He thinks we're ridiculous sometimes. How do I know he thinks that way? Because I'm speaking the mind of Christ from his book. It's vain. You know what that means? It's worthless. It's nothing. It's the heathen doing it. Don't pray with repetitions. Don't pray too long. Once in a while, if you are in serious trouble, you'll pray long. I've been there, but th those are exceptions. Those are exceptions when you're laying on the floor with your face in the carpet begging God for help. Generally, you can get your job done in less than one minute. Now, am I an overbearing pastor? And isn't that true? If you pray for one minute, you'll outdo, I'll raise my 90% estimate, 95% of all the prayers in the Word of God can be handled in less than 60 seconds. If you'll pray that way, you can pray fervently. And I want you to do that so as not to be discouraged. If you husbands and wives got out of bed in the morning and prayed for one minute, each of you prayed for one minute, listen, if you can't handle that, Pray for 30 seconds each and we'll combine the two. And prayed fervently and seriously the way we've described here, in agreement, asking God for things according to His will in the name of Christ with thanksgiving and praise, we'll start counting our blessings. And all of you who will be honest before me this morning know we would start counting our blessings because that would be progress. May God bless this church to have some progress in their praying.